0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Roger's News.
1: Hello, you're listening to The Views Room, a podcast brought to you from Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Seba. I'm joined here in the studio in New York with Anna Szymanski. Hi Anna. Hello. Anthony Curry. Hello Anthony. Hello. And on the line from a remote office in Palo Alto is Gina Chan. Hi Gina. Um, All right, so this is our time of year that we gear up for our annual predictions book where all of the Breaking Views columnists from around the world put on our thinking caps and try and figure out what we think is going to happen next year. And thankfully, we have the global editor of this book. Is that the sure. title? i mean,
0: not sure it's quite the title. I'm giving up. Have Global Editor from now on. Yes, I will take that title. We have the, the guy. The will never be commensurate <laughs> with it, but there you go. We
1: have the guy who did this book. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's more accurate.
1: Anthony Curry. <laughs> well, you had help with your, a lot of colleagues in your uh, Yes, Liam
0: Proud, Proud uh, Una Galani, and Katrina Hamlin all chipped in, more than chipped in. I couldn't have done it. I, they could have done it without me. I couldn't have done it without them.
1: Okay. So uh, you're here to tell us what is the theme this year?
0: Yeah, so this year we went for a, you know, we we, we like to uh, keep things real and we like to be nice and positive. So we called it Turning Up the Heat, A Pivotal Year for Profit, Politics and the Planet, which kind of tells you everything you need to know already in that. And if you think about the cover we've got in the image, well, you can't because you haven't seen it. I'll tell you it's an image uh, from uh, the burning Amazon forest fires uh, earlier this year. So basically, we're not really painting a pretty picture from the start.
1: So rainbows and gumdrops.
0: Rainbows and gumdrops, yeah.
1: But there must be some sunshine and good news in any of this?
0: Well, actually, what, what we've done this year, despite the fact we're journalists and we like to look for the negative, and yes, the, the, the cover image and the title make you think negativity, negativity, or problems. If you look at the beginning of the book, the first two of the six chapters are actually pretty positive. We're looking for the good things in there that we think are worth bringing out. Of course, we then move on to some of the worst stuff and then some lighter-hearted stuff at the end.
1: So in this edition, we're going to focus on the happy chapter called Fired Up. And yes. we have, uh, we're looking at a lot of different things here. Uh, politics is obviously playing a big role in uh, things next year with the U.S. election looming. Um, we have uh, lots of things going on with the Federal Reserve. Yep. Anna, you can speak to that. All right. So, Gina, let's start off with you. Let's uh, turn our attention to Washington uh, regulation and Silicon Valley. Um, You were looking at Twitter, and you have a unique uh, view on uh, the chief executive, Jack Dorsey. Why don't you tell us a little bit about him, and and what do you think he is going to be doing in this next year?
2: So Dorsey is an interesting person, because he's um, not really someone who you think would do well in Washington. He's soft-spoken, he's awkward, um, and isn't the most uh, charismatic person, at least when it comes to appearing before Congress. But he's actually uh, done well in his appearances there, unlike some of his counterparts. And so I think uh, in 2020, we could see him as the anti-Facebook hero.
1: Okay, so what what about him that he has done well uh, in front of the Hill and in front of uh, legislators.
0: Yeah, apart, apart from shaming Mark Zuckerberg about slaying goats or whatever it was all those months ago.
2: But he's actually come across as more upfront and genuine about all the problems that Twitter faces. Um, he was very honest about all the toxic content about um, on Twitter's platform and how it has become unhealthy in many ways. and. He was also honest about um, the confusing terms of use. I mean, he told one of the lawmakers that if he sat down with a cup of coffee and read uh, Twitter's users um, agreement, that it would be really hard to understand. And that's coming from you know the person who you would think would would understand it fairly well. So um, I think that has helped make his case. And you actually haven't really seen him call back, whereas. His counterparts um, at Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, had to appear um, for yet another uh, scandal that broke out around um, their Libra digital currency project and all the problems uh, that that faced among global regulators. Uh, So he's in a bit of a different um, category now on that front.
3: And how do you think the upcoming election could affect that? Because obviously Twitter is used for political talk. Even if it, they can't have political ads now, you're still going to have a lot of people talking about politics.
2: Sure. And um, and definitely, you know, I and mean, none of the social media companies are going to have an easy ride in 2020. There's going to be a lot of scrutiny on all of them. But Dorsey at least took uh, one of the big first decisive steps in terms of banning political ads, which uh, is something that um, was sort of a clean and simple solution to a growing controversy that Facebook and YouTube face, uh, whereas they've decided to just kind of add um, additional restrictions and sort of a lot of bells and whistles to um, what can and cannot be done, which is actually just uh, increase the outcry because, you know, one party or the other isn't happy with that. So um, we'll see how that goes um, forward in, in 2020. But at least on that front, uh, Dorsey was putting forth a, uh, a solution that actually was applauded by a lot of politicians.
3: And why do you think he's acting so differently than all the other CEOs?
2: Well, it's, it's interesting. I, when I um, saw him speak... He, um, he actually seemed to really think of uh, Twitter and what he created uh, faced an existential crisis in terms of um, what it's become and what it will be going forward, whereas you feel like uh, a lot of the other CEOs, like when, when Zuckerberg speaks before Congress or when Sundar uh, Pichai, who's now both head of Alphabet and um, its unit you know, Google, were both kind of more technical and wonky, and or had uh, certain talking points that just didn't quite seem to resonate and fit the mood in Washington. They sounded a bit more defensive, or were trying to explain some of the, the technicalities of how things work, and that just wasn't the message that um, Washington wanted to hear.
0: And you know, I, I think the one thing that I suppose surprises me, or this, Eugenia, is is. Isn't Dorsey trying to escape all of this anyway? I and mean, he keeps saying he's going to be moving to Africa.
2: Yeah, no. Yeah. So that'll be interesting to see if he's uh, even around for some of the headaches that that might be coming down the road. He um, after a recent trip to. You, Africa and it's unclear which country um, he plans to live in or maybe it'll be multiple and he'll move around a bit but he says he will spend part of the year um, living there so uh, maybe he'll be dealing with uh, some of the problems remotely but it's also a way to maybe escape some of the uh, turmoil.
1: All right. So we have Jack Dorsey. We also uh, there are a few other people that we were writing about that are doing some interesting things in Washington, including um, the Fed chairman, uh, Jay Powell. What exactly is interesting about him? <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. Do tell. <laughs> All right. Other than being beleaguered by President Trump.
0: Well, that's the thing. I mean, it, it, you go back to one of the themes of the book, which is, you know, the pivotal year for the planet. Uh, climate risk is is such a huge issue on so many business people's minds now to the point where we now have more than 50 central banks signed up for the network for greening the financial system i e trying to find ways to factor climate risk into how they think about uh, the economy um one of the well the single biggest uh, central bank that is not involved in this uh, is the federal reserve mm-hmm so one of the, the arguments that Rob Cox makes, one of our colleagues makes, is that Jay Powell should use this n- uh, network for green financial system to prove the central bank's independence from the White House and from Donald Trump. Donald Trump, don't forget, is someone who has in the past called climate change a hoax, basically denied it. He's not quite so bad about it now, he basically is taking the U.S. out of um, the, Paris the Paris Climate S- yeah. Accord uh, and is doing all he can along with his cohorts to uh, take away environmental restrictions. So. Were Jay Powell to say, you know what, let's take the Fed into this, we need to work out what this means for the financial system, it's very important, we can't ignore it, regardless of politics, that would be a great way for the Fed to say, you know what guys, even though you kind of, sort of, arguably did or didn't make us cut rates several times in 2019, we really are going to stand alone and we're proving it by going against you. Uh, Donald Trump on climate change
3: and what would this actually entail when you 're saying greening the financial system
0: well that 's sort of all up in the up in the air, but what it 's mostly about from a central banking perspective is working out how to think about the medium, well, sometimes short, but short, medium and long-term risks that climate change brings. So, for example, what happens if you have a massive flood uh, and the, those floods continue and are increasing and are more frequent in, say, the Midwest, affecting multiple farmers and therefore the economy in that region and possibly elsewhere? And what if you have increasing instances of wildfires in California therefore, and as there a knock-on effect hitting various economies? So I was in Australia recently uh, where... Um, there were many wildfires outside Sydney. We left before it got really bad. But looking at it since then, schools have been closing on several days in a row. You've had uh, people not shopping as much. You've had people uh, being off, off work sick. The water's getting affected with ash in the water. All these things add up to, maybe not at the moment, a huge amounts of money. They add up over time. And if you think you know, if this also affects where companies are placing their businesses, how they think about um, what they should buy or not, um, the Fed really and, and central banks really need to be involved in what this means overall for the the national and international economies. And so they're still working out how they do that.
3: Right, because I know that there's a bit of controversy about some of this especially in Europe with the idea of potentially central banks actually kind of supporting green infrastructure, you yeah. know, like using their balance sheet in that sense, right? And I, and I don't think that's necessarily what would would make sense for the Fed, but but I do know that that that, that is somewhat controversial, right?
0: Yeah, I mean where this fits into central banks mandates is definitely up for discussion. Um, Frankie, I think if if it's a, if you consider it a core economic issue over the next However, many years you want to call it, it is a big issue for central banks. Should central banks be involved in funding certain things? That is a conversation for far down the road. And if they end up doing that, it's probably, I would suggest, through a lack of commitment by national government, national and local governments, as opposed to by the, by the central banks.
1: And, and so, do they normally step in in situations like this? I mean, well, I is there an we example? I haven't seen a
0: situation like this. Yeah, but so but it comes to if you think about mandates, um, you know, the Fed's mandate. Uh, certainly got tested during the financial crisis and you know was its is its mandate to go out and buy trillions of dollars of assets to keep the economy going arguably yes arguably no depends on which, which side of the hmm. political camp you're on
3: well but i mean if you're saying that their mandate is you know Full employment and two percent inflation. Then, when you're in a massive crisis, you know yeah. that seems to fit into that. So, I mean, I I could see a way where it makes sense that if this becomes a risk, especially if it becomes an acute risk, yeah. then you could potentially have to have the yeah. central bank step in.
0: Yeah. Also, I think at the moment, to an ex- great extent, though, it is about certainly from the way the Fed were probably thinking about it, and the Bank of England is looking at it, and the Bank of Bank of France. I think it's a lot more about making sure that banks, especially are thinking this through and the other companies are thinking it through. Making sure that the financial system is aware of that. It's almost like and i hate using this phrase but sort of a trickle down effect which of course never works no one believes in trickle down economics except except those who benefit from it or the, the lack of it working but the idea is that that you can influence things by making sure that the most crucial parts of the system are looking at the risks properly
3: and i think that's actually really important because i think people often don't talk as much about the kind of regulatory arm of the fed but you know that is part of it and and i do think you know if you're thinking of the you know the private banking industry moving forward they are going to have to consider these risks i mean they they're the ones who will Either be funding the green projects or not funding other projects, and if you know they don't have someone kind of, kind of pushing them to consider these risks, you know that could be a big problem.
0: Yeah, well, they were. They, yes and no. I and mean, I suppose there there are certain banks who have already said we are going to do a better job on climate. So Goldman Sachs very recently uh, came out and said we're going to be we're going to try and do 750 billion of. Uh, sustainability driven uh financing over the next 10 years sounds great they include mergers and acquisitions in that where you're not really doing much as a bank but you know if you do sort of 10 deals worth 443 million each billion each like the recent car deal between uh, fiat Chrysler and persia they advised on then you cut which has a degree of electric vehicle elements in that electric batteries then you're kind of getting there without really doing much but yes, I mean there, there is that. Also, the, on the flip side of the financial uh, coin, of course, on climate change, which is another one of the predictions at the front of the book, the, the positive part of the book, is um, that we'll see a lot more pressure coming from shareholders on companies uh, which have yet to do enough on climate risk.
1: So do you have any examples of this so in terms of like the shareholders pushing back cuz to well, me we, yeah. it seems like uh, it's one of these very squishy issues sorry to well, say Well it's it it, it, it
0: it I think it probably was a couple of years ago and a lot of what we were seeing uh, say uh, in um Uh, proxy fights, not so much proxy fights, but more in shareholder resolutions and and votes was um, Exxon, please give us more information about how you're thinking about climate risk over the next 30, 40 years. Over the past year and a half, that's got better. So you've seen uh, there's, there's there's a group called Climate Action 100 Plus, which has about 35 trillion under management among the, I think, 370 or so asset managers around the world that are involved in it. And they're going along to they basically identified the hundred top global emitters, and they've uh, of, of greenhouse gases, and they're saying we want you guys to do a much better job. So they've gone after BP, Shell, Glencore. So a better job,
1: what in terms of uh, their transparency? A better job. It starts
0: off with transparency. It's increasingly shifting towards we want you to put a cap on the emissions um, you're going to produce. We want you to link um, emissions reductions to share to, to CEO pay, that kind of thing. But I think what we'll see in twenty twenty. Is that shareholders will get much more pushy with some of these companies on actually not just capping emissions but coming up with better short medium and long-term emissions reductions targets also they'll be um, i think trying to uh, get more of the entire supply chain involved so it's not just okay BP or Exxon do this but it's let's look at the entire supply chain because yes we can say that that, that you know the big oil companies account for x amount of, of emissions but we're including in that the supply chain that brings it to them and also what you me and the rest of the world use it for so how do we get all of that involved and that does also involve getting involved with governments uh, and others which makes it a bit trickier but I think shareholders will get a lot more pushy including going after some of the passive investors so these big like passive the investment Rocks funds like the Blackrocks so you know they talk a good game some of them Black Blackrocks Larry Fink the CEO especially talks a big game uh, on trying to do good by environmental social and governance metrics but let's be honest um, them the only thing they can do is say that the, the most effective way of getting a company to do what you want is to say at the end of the day we will sell your stock and you know Blackrock isn't going to do that it's an index fund it can't do that so what we'll see is the asset owners those who are Devoting the money that they manage to, or that they have to the asset managers to, to deal with.
1: Is there, you know, a, a specific reason why next year is kind of a pivotal year for this and for governments? Well, like- I,
0: I, I think. Two reasons. First, because we've seen so many incidents in the past 18 months, yeah. you know, from you know, wildfires, you know, uh, PG&E going bankrupt in California and most, most result of this floods, everything else. I think there's just much more of a recognition among shareholders that things need to change. But also 2020 marks the fifth anniversary of the Paris Climate Accords. Okay. And the goal of the accord was after five years, governments are meant to up their, re-examine and increase their commitments based on what extra knowledge and data they've got. I'm not saying it's going to happen next year, but I think there will be more of a push, even if it ends up being a bit of a damp squib again. But shareholders are going to get behind that and really push because I think, frankly, they see what's at stake. The Goldman Sachs of this world see what's at stake. And if Goldman's saying we're going after 750 billion, they know there's money there. So governments will hopefully come under pressure to do more as well.
1: All right. So that wraps up part one of our uh, Views Room additions that we're going to be doing on our predictions book. We're going to be also turning to Europe and uh, Asia. Our colleagues there will be filling you in on uh, their various predictions in the upcoming weeks. So uh, please, you know, stay tuned for that and uh, make sure you uh, come back and listen to the Views Room.
0: That's our show for this week. We are going to take uh, the Christmas week off, so join us again in the new year. Thanks to Gina Chon for coming on the show, and we extend our gratitude, as always, to our producers, Freddie Joyner and Tom Lubansky. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister show, The Exchange, on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. And please do share your opinions about our shows. Join us again soon for another edition.